All right, welcome to our second and final week of prologue as we're leading up to our Christmas celebration uh, together. As John mentioned, the series, we're talking about things that lead up to the Christmas story. We're all very familiar with the Christmas story. Even people who don't believe in the Christmas story or believe that Jesus was who he said he was are very familiar with the Christmas story because they go to the pageants, they hear their kids, you know, they hear Linus talk about it every, every year in the cartoons. So we're all very familiar with the Christmas story, but we want to talk about the things that came right before it because those things are as important because they show us what God was doing immediately before. Last week, John talked about how leading up to the birth of Jesus, there was over 430 years of silence from heaven, that God spoke through prophets and people and miracles and signs for like generations and years and hundreds and thousands of years. And then all of a sudden, for 400 years leading up to this momentous history, eternity-altering moment, God was silent. But as John talked about, God's silence does not indicate his absence. God's silence means he doesn't mean he is stagnant. In fact, when God is silent, oftentimes that's an indication that God is doing stuff and he's just not telling us yet because we or whatever around us is not ready for what's about to happen. It's a great message. I encourage you to go listen to it. Now, before we move on, though, I need to acknowledge something from last week. Um, if you were here, if you watched online, you heard John deliver one of the greatest burns at my expense in, in the history of Heartland, and arguably the funniest thing he's ever said in a sermon, which apparently some of you said to him. Um, if you weren't here, what he said was, after spending a year teaching uh, students who were obnoxious kids with wild imaginations, God was preparing him to work with me. Oh, it's funny again. Okay, let's get it. In a response, I'd like to say this. <clears throat> I just want to say, John is one of my very best friends. He is one of the greatest pastors I've ever known. He loves his wife selflessly. He makes time for his kids almost every day. He is genuine and passionate and loves God and loves the gospel message to his core. I genuinely love him as my brother and as my friend, and I'm so unbelievably grateful that I get to work with him and do life with him. That's it. Yeah. Apparently being a teacher didn't teach John anything about the high road. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Uh, so like John talked about last week, uh, hundreds of years of silence leading up to the birth of the Messiah. Hundreds of years of nothing. Nothing God spoke through prophets, nothing God spoke through people, nothing uh, directly from heaven, no miracles, no signs, no wonders. Because leading up to that, there was all of these signs. There was just prophecies and this like and building anticipation of what was to come, that a savior of the world was coming, not just a savior for God's people, but a savior through his people for all of mankind. God prophesied that the Messiah would be born a child, be born of a virgin, that he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. There was this coming Messiah who would redeem the broken relationship between a holy God and his broken sinful people. A savior who was coming who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All these prophecies leading up that the Jewish people read about, they heard about, they studied, then there's this silence. 
Then there's this 435-year silence. The tension builds. The waiting becomes almost unbearable. And then, boom, God breaks the silence with the birth of Jesus. Actually, that's not true. Because God's silence was not broken by the birth of his son. In fact, God's silence wasn't broken by his voice or his presence at all. It was actually broken by the voice of an angel. But not an angel speaking to prophets, not an angel speaking to Mary or Joseph or shepherds or wise men. It was an angel speaking to Zechariah. That's correct. Anybody know who Zechariah is? If you don't, don't worry. You're not alone. He's not on the famous wall of Bible people. You probably don't have anything quoted by him stitched in your grandmother's bathroom. But Zechariah was a priest, and he was Jesus' mother's mom's sister's husband. Yep, he was his non-blood-related uncle, the way that God broke this 400-plus-year silence. In Luke 1, a full chapter, before we get to the part of the Christmas story that we're all very familiar with, we read this. Luke chapter 1, when Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abjab, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. Speaking of Burns, Scripture's got one here. Can't have kids and you're old. Now, you might not be familiar with this, but these are, like, honestly, these are the words leading up to the Christmas story. This comes right before. We skip right to Luke 2, but this happened, or uh, yeah, Luke 2, but this happens in Luke 1. And then here's the moment where God's 400 year silence is broken. Again, was not like the manger and the stable and the birth, and everybody's like, whoa, that was such a lead up. Good job, Lord. This, this is how God's silence was broken right here. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple. For his order was, uh, was on duty that week, as was custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. Coincidence? No, God orchestrated this. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, silence, right here, broken. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man of the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. Silence, broken, no more. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Notice he didn't say old. He was a smart husband. I'm super old. My wife is very wise. Well along in years. Then the angel said, the angel didn't like this, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God, and it was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For many words will certainly be fulfilled at this proper time. His wife was like, can't speak for nine months? Okie doke. At this point, Zechariah is unable to speak. He goes home 
talks to, I mean, tries to talk to Elizabeth through like, you know, motions and trying to communicate this. He kind of says like, hey, I was spoken to by God. We're going to have this baby. We've got to name him John. Elizabeth becomes pregnant. Then at this point is when Gabriel, the same angel, speaks to Mary, tells her what's going on, that she's going to have God's son. And then after that, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and stays with her for three months. Luke 1, verse 39. A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leapt within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. Again, all this happening before the birth of Jesus. I imagine this, this is kind of a bunny trail, but I imagine this moment was really, really powerful for Mary, um, who up until this point, I'm certain felt a whole bunch of uh, uncertainty and loneliness. Like, you know, God spoke this to her, but I'm sure there was doubt. I'm sure there was questioning, like there was happened. But for, you know, go visit Elizabeth and for Elizabeth to prophetically speak such confirmation to Mary, I'm sure was like huge in Mary's faith. Um, And she stayed with her for three months. Okay, uh, moving on. Luke 1, verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to his son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her, just like Gabriel said they would. When the baby baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision ceremony. They wanted to name him Zechariah after his father, but Elizabeth said, no, his name is John, just like Zechariah had said. What? They exclaim, there's no one in your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him. He motioned for a writing tablet, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John, and instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. Awe fell upon the whole neighborhood, and the news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, Why, what will this child turn out to be, for the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. John grew up and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry in Israel. This concludes Luke chapter 1, and the next words in Luke chapter 2 are the ones we're very familiar with. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. So that's where we typically start the Christmas story, but all of this stuff happened directly before it, breaking God's silence, leading up to this. All of this divine activity was happening in preparation for the birth of God's Son. God broke this super long silence by sending an angel to talk to someone who wasn't even blood-related to Jesus over a year before Jesus was even born. And God didn't try to hide this. This was not a surprise. This was not a shock. Among the many prophecies that God spoke in the Old Testament, there was 330 specifically, or over 330 about Jesus specifically that he fulfilled, but there were also prophecies about John who would come prepare the way for Jesus. In Isaiah 40, this is in the year 700 BC, almost a thousand years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah said, listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all the people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. This is talking about John. In fact, John later is going to quote this as saying, I am this. This is me. God sent me to prepare the way. 
And then in Malachi, the last verse in the First Testament before the New Testament, this was still, like I said, 430 years B.C. before Jesus, the, Mal- the prophet Malachi said, look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. And to be honest, the life and the ministry of JTB, John the Baptist, does not get a whole lot of love or attention, you know, because then Jesus comes, we're like, that's more important. That's that, you know, it's like the opening act at a show or a comedy club. You're like, he was good, but we're really here for Brian Regan. And then you got to, you know, see who really came at the end there. But John's life and ministry was awesome. I mean, it's amazing, like the life that he lived. Again, this the whole first chapter of Luke is spent talking about this lead up and this birth, not yet talking about Jesus. We read some about his work a few chapters later in Matthew 3. It says, In those days John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This goes back to the prophecy of like straightening the crooked roads and smoothing out the bumps. This is what he's doing. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. There you go. What's the Bible tell me to do? Bugs and honey. Okay. People from Jerusalem and from all Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John, and when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. He said, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I am not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Then look what happens later in John's account. It just gives us such a glimpse into the, the like worshipful heart, the humility of this man, John the Baptist. We're all very familiar with this. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. I mean, just the humility that this shows of John the Baptist. Not only that when Jesus approached, he's like, holy bananas, I am not worthy to carry your dirty shoes, let alone baptize you. You are my Lord. You are my God. Not only that humility, but also the humility to obey once Jesus said, no, this is what needs to be done. John didn't just keep being like, no, 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 I'm not going to. He said, okay, Lord, yes, I will obey you, even though this doesn't make sense, which is going to become a theme. We also read in the Gospel of John, the disciple, not John the Baptist, the Gospel of John, the disciple, that John the Baptist was asked if he was the promised Messiah, asked if he was Elijah or a prophet, which he confidently said no, and then he quoted the prophecy in uh, Isaiah saying uh, that I'm the one calling in the wilderness, I'm the one preparing the way. So just incredible humility. Every account that we read about John the Baptist shows us that his entire life was one giant act of worship for God. His whole life was devoted to God. He spent his time homeless and preaching the message that brought people back to their God in a powerful way, preparing them, their hearts, their minds, their lives for the Messiah. 
And it's at this point, the Gospels transition to talking about Jesus, which makes sense because, you know, he's the son of God. But we do know that John continued his ministry throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. He didn't just stop once Jesus came along. He kept ministering. He kept preaching. He kept presumably baptizing. And most significantly, he kept sending people to Jesus. His whole purpose, his whole message was to point them towards their Savior, towards their God, towards the promised Messiah. John's entire ministry was a carbon copy of Jesus' ministry. In fact, there's one account where the Pharisees confront Jesus about something really specific involving fasting, and they included that John the Baptist's disciples, his followers, were also doing the same thing because JTB was like, I'm just going to copy my ministry off what my Lord says. I'm going to follow him. There are multiple times that mentioned that John had disciples of his own, including James and possibly even Philip, whom he sent directly to Jesus, and they then became the disciples of Jesus. At some point during Jesus' ministry, John was arrested by Herod uh, because Herod's wife did not like John the Baptist because John said to Herod, you shouldn't marry her, this isn't right. But he was like, ah, you know, happy wife, happy life. So, he, you know, he didn't say that in the scripture, but uh, that's what he said. So he arrested John the Baptist. Then there's like a real creepy moment where uh, his wife's daughter, his stepdaughter, does like a dance for him. Ugh. And then he liked the dance so much, he said, I'll give you whatever you want. And because her mom told her to, she's like, I want John the, head, John the Baptist's head on a platter. And he was like, gosh, I wish I could take that back. But he actually committed in front of not only them, but a whole huge room of people. So he's like, I got to follow through. And so he did that. And so John was beheaded. Uh, when Jesus was told about John's death, the next sentence is that Jesus left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. Um, Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, this man who was, was prophesied and born to prepare the way, this man who demonstrated like humility and worship and the, I mean, the, we can't even estimate the number of souls, the number of human beings who are now going to be in eternity with their heavenly father because of John the Baptist. Jesus, after hearing about his death, needed, needed to tag out for a minute. Such an incredible story of this man, John the Baptist. So why is this important? Why is the prologue to the Christmas story Important to pay attention to, to John the Baptist. I mean, he was just, again, he was the opening act. We don't really super care about them. They were just preparing the way. But why do we need to talk about it this morning? Well, this illustrates a pattern of God's that I would like to talk about this morning. A pattern that he has uh, been true to since the beginning of time, and he continues to this day. And to do that, uh, to talk about that pattern, first we need to talk about July 31st, 2006. Anybody remember July 31st, 2006? I do. July 31st, 2006 was a Monday. Remember? Yep. Uh, it was a day that Fidel Castro handed over power to his brother while he underwent surgery. Famous moment, obviously. Uh, the top songs in the U.S. and the U.K. were Promiscuous by Nelly Furtado and My Hips Don't Lie by Shakira. Real Christ-centered stuff going on there. And finally, most importantly, it was on this day that Warner Brothers Studios announced that Heath Ledger would be playing the Joker in the upcoming movie, The Dark Knight, which was the sequel to the amazing movie, Batman Begins, by Christopher Nolan. I don't know about you, but I remember hearing this as a 22-year-old, just super expert on all things opinions and movies, and, uh, you know, I knew everything, obviously, and I just hated this announcement. I was like, hey, hang on a minute. 
Heath Led, like the guy from A Knight's Tale and 10 Things I Hate About You is going to play one of the most iconic, mysterious, dark villains in fictional history? This is the guy that you chose? I was annoyed, I was confused, and I was certainly not alone. This was before, you know, social media It was like, hey, your opinion matters. Spout it without consequences or accountability. Well, we weren't quite there yet. There was social media, but not as much as today. But the world, like, reacted super negatively to this announcement. They were like, what are, what are you thinking casting this character with this actor? People were so ticked and so mad. There was so much backlash, and I was immediately part of that backlash. But then something happened. We all watched the movie. And like many of you, and most of the world, I was floored after seeing The Dark Knight. I was blown away by the brilliance of his performance, the depth, the mystery, the darkness, the humor that he brought to the character of the Joker in The Dark Knight. And it made The Dark Knight one of the greatest movies of all time, by many people's estimates, and definitely one of the greatest acting performances of all time. Um, as we all know, Heath Ledger uh, tragically, horribly passed away soon after he made this film. But because of his acting in the role, he was nominated and won an Oscar, a BAFTA, a Golden Globe, and a Screen Actors Guild Award for Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of the Joker. To this day, because of his uh, acting ability in that role, because if they cast him in that role, it has solidified The Dark Knight as one of the greatest movies of all time. Many people saying it is in their top five, top three, or their favorite film of all time. So what does Heath Ledger have to do with God? <laughs> Nothing. Let's close. No. <clears throat> uh, let me tell you, Warner Brothers knew something that we did not. Warner Brothers knew something that the vast majority of the public, myself included, did not know, which was that Heath Ledger was perfect for that role. Unlike me and my very strong, very ignorant opinion, they had seen Heath Ledger audition. They had talked to him in depth about the role and the character and what he wanted to bring to it. They had read the script with him. They had seen exactly what he was going to do, and so they knew without a shadow of a doubt he was the perfect person for the role. So despite the majority of public opinion backlashing against their decision, like, like hating them for casting this actor in this role, the producer, the director, the higher-ups involved went ahead with making The Dark Knight, went ahead with making Heath Ledger the Joker because they knew they were right and they were. And we didn't realize it till after the fact. And this is something that God does all the time. God does things that to us make no sense. God, does th God sometimes doesn't do things that to us make no sense. And we look at God and we say, what are you doing? Do you know what you're doing? This? This job? That relationship didn't work out? This is how you made me? This is why you didn't give me that skill or that? What are you doing? God is constantly choosing people that to the majority of society seem like absolutely the wrong person. And this is a pattern of God's. This is the pattern that he has done since the beginning, which is calling and using and equipping and speaking to and through people who don't make sense. A better way to put it, people who don't make sense from our perspective. People that none of us would think or choose 
if we were God, which thankfully none of us are. God chose Abraham and Sarah to be the father, the parents of his great nation. Abraham and Sarah, who were also very old, also unable to have children. This is the theme. He keeps choosing people who are old and barren to do things involving like large numbers and reproduction. Doesn't make sense to us. God doesn't. God chose Moses to lead his entire nation of people despite Moses having a speech impediment and a fear of being in front of people. It is hard to lead a large group of people when you have a fear of being in front of a large group of people. Doesn't make sense. God chose him. God chose Samuel to be a prophet when he was a kid. He was a young boy. He didn't even know God was speaking to him. He kept going to his uncle being like, are you calling me? And eventually his uncle was like, I think it's God. Respond to him, it's not me. God chose David to be king, even though he was the youngest and the weakest of all his brothers. Even though he was a redhead. God chose Rahab, who was a Gentile prostitute, to be in the family line that led to the birth of his son. God chose an unmarried virgin to be the mother of his son. God chose a group of shepherds, which was one of the lowest vocations culturally at that time, usually manned by young girls, young children, mostly young girls. God chose shepherds to announce and celebrate the birth of his son. God chose a group of foreign Gentile astrologers to travel from the east and bring powerfully symbolic gifts to his son. And so many more. None of these make sense. None of these people make sense. We would not have planned it this way. And yet this is a pattern. This is what God does time and time and time and time and time again. God establishes this pattern. He chooses women and men and children and students. None of us would choose to be a part of these world-altering events in history, these eternity-altering events in the lives of you and me. And God does this today. God chose this throughout history, that every human that has or does or will exist will be affected by. That leading to the birth of his son, God used Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were old, they were were barren. And a guy named John, who was the cousin of the promised Messiah, to pave the way, to preach truth, to baptize, to bring people to the Lord in preparation for the Messiah. And God continues to do this today. Uh, one of the greatest examples of this from my own life, and I, I talk about my kid a lot, both, both my kids, so I'm not really sorry, but just, you know, fair warning. Um, but uh, the way that God has used Ava, my daughter, has just blown me away. Uh, we named Ava uh, Ava with an E because we felt like God was gonna, uh, she was going to be somebody who God used to bring life to other people. That's why we didn't spell it with an A. If your name is Ava with an A, it's beautiful. We just decided to go with an E because it's derived from Eve, which means life. And we just felt God say, this, your child's going to bring life to people. And we were like, giddy up. And if you have ever met Ava, either pre or post accident, you know, that's 100% true. She was a, is a spitfire and she's super uh, uh, feisty is the nice word that we use. <laughs> Very feisty. Some of you have those children too. Uh, she, man, she just brings life to people. And then, uh, you know, so we just were like, we told her all the time, like, baby, you were named Ava because God's going to bring life and love to other people through you. It's going to happen. We're so excited about it. And she did that for sure. Then after her accident, it just again, this doesn't make sense, but it would have been easy to say, okay, she had a traumatic brain injury. She's now 100% dependent. She's nonverbal. Well, I guess that's over. 
you know, she had a solid seven years of that. That was great. Now that's over. And yet there have been like thousands of people who have experienced life and love through Ava post-traumatic brain injury. That doesn't make sense. I have connected with people. I have talked with people. I've received messages from people who, I mean, here's just a few examples. People who uh, had walked away from the church, had walked away from God, and returned because of Ava. I've talked to and uh, connected with atheists who don't believe in God that pray for her. That really doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, who are you praying? Oh, it's so cool. It's, it's cool. I get it. In fact, I talked to, there was a nurse uh, when Ava was admitted with RSV a couple, uh, couple months ago who came, uh, literally wasn't even like on that floor but made a point to come down and, and find me. And she said, I just want to let you know, uh, three years ago after your daughter's accident, when you all were talking about your faith and like God, you know, God was still involved, God was still working, God, she was like, at the time, I didn't believe in God. I believed there was no God. I didn't think that was real. But because of what you all have said, I've been on this journey and God has been like drawing me to himself and I've been discovering more and more that he is real. So now I believe he is real. And discovering more of who he is. And then I picked myself up off the floor and I was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. So God is using my daughter, who again, 100% dependent, nonverbal, to bring life and love to thousands and thousands of people around the globe. I've talked to some of you, some of you who watch or attend Heartland because of Ava's story. And to us, it doesn't make sense. To us, that shouldn't happen. In our culture, in our, in our world, in our finite human perspective, we want to choose the strongest, the most obvious, the most famous, the most powerful, the richest. God's kingdom is exactly opposite. So here's where I want to close our time. After all that, <laughs> all of you planning to watch The Dark Knight later, I very much encourage that. It's a Christmas movie. No, it's not. Um, I, want to close, I want to close with three questions, just, just for you to ponder, just rhetorical questions for you to consider. Because again, th- this pattern of God using people that don't make sense is well established. He's not going to change. He's not going to stop. And so I just want to ask these three questions to leave you with, to process um, as we enter into the Christmas season and maybe for the rest of your life. Here's the first question. Is there a time in your life that God worked in your life in a way that didn't make sense, but looking back does now? This might take some more thought than just these next few moments, but is there a time in your life when God worked in a way that at the time, maybe you were mad about it, maybe you're ticked off about it, like, God, this is the wrong way to work. And yet, looking back, you're like, oh, I see what you were doing. Second question. Have you ever, either consciously or subconsciously, thought that you were not someone that God could move or speak through? If you have ever had that thought, you're wrong. If you have ever had the thought, I don't know enough, I've not been a Christian long enough, I can't quote a verse to support this, I can't, you know, if you, whatever thought that was, where you're like, it doesn't make sense for me to be somebody that God would move through or speak through, you're wrong, according to the evidence of Scripture for thousands and thousands of years. And third question. Is there anyone in your life whom God has been speaking to you through that doesn't make sense? Maybe if you're in a season where you're like, God is not speaking, I wish God would show up, I wish God would move, I wish God would reveal himself. Maybe God's doing all those things, 
but through a way that you're not seeing or you're not hearing or you're not paying attention to because it doesn't make sense. Maybe it's uh, somebody who is not a Christian. God's big enough to do that. Maybe it's somebody who you hate. <laughs> Maybe it's that journey song on the radio. I just really, there's no box that we can put God in. But there might be a way that God is speaking to you. There might be a person that God is speaking to you through that doesn't make sense. And it's time to start thinking this way. The less it makes sense, the more likely it's probably God. <laughs> the less it makes sense to us, the more likely it's God doing something powerful in our lives. Because this is how God works. God works by preparing us for what he's doing, for what's to come, for what he's promised, for what we're praying for, for what we're waiting for. Even when that preparation involves silence, even when that preparation means speaking and moving and prompting and performing miracles in ways that don't make sense. And you might be the person God's trying to use to speak through, but you've been shutting it down and be like, oh, that can't be me, that doesn't make sense. And or you might be the person God's trying to speak to, but we're missing it because the voice or the person or whatever doesn't make sense. We're like, God wouldn't do that. God, I got to be in this place at this time. And, this. and God's like, well, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do it in the way that you expect. I'm pro He's probably not even going to say the thing that you expect. And I'm not sure what place you're in. But you need to stop thinking that it doesn't make sense for God to use you. And you need to stop thinking that however God speaks to you is going to immediately make sense to you because God is always present. God is always good. God is always working. Even when he's silent, even when we can't feel him, even and maybe especially when it doesn't make sense. And the story of John the Baptist leading up to the most momentous event in all of history teaches us that. That God did not break the silence with his son, fully God and fully human, being born on a diamond-encrusted mountain in front of the world. That's what I would have done, right? You're like, this is a crazy event. We've got to make a big deal of it. Spotlights weren't invented then. I would have made them as God. Be like, boom, spotlights, balloons, you know, like at the car places, that balloons sell cars, they say. There would have been balloons there. I just would have done all these things, and that made sense. And God's like, nope, I'm going to do it in a way that doesn't make sense but it's the right way. So I'm going to close in prayer. And we're going to leave. We're going to walk out of this building. We're going to walk back into our Sundays, walk back into our lives. And I encourage you to open your eyes and open your hearts and open your minds to ways that God is speaking to you that don't make sense because the less it makes sense, the more likely it's God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, uh, nothing you do is wasted. I'm reminded of that in reading your word, that there is no idle action or word or direction or prompting or moment or relationship, all of it, you are uh, using to bless us as our loving, perfect heavenly father. And Lord, just in this moment, um, for all of us watching or listening or in the room, God, for myself, I... I um, I surrender, I acknowledge my pride for all the times I've thought you're doing it wrong and I know better. For all the times I've thought the way you're doing it doesn't make sense and therefore is wrong. Lord, I, I confess my pride. I surrender my pride. Lord, I ask that you would give me, I ask that you would give us 
um, eyes and ears and hearts to see and to hear your voice and your presence in the ways that don't make sense. Lord, even in this moment right now, bring um, people and names and places and moments to the surface of our minds in ways that you are moving and speaking, that we would notice them, that we would see them. Lord, we would be intentional with people we need to go speak to, to speak a word of love or encouragement. God, that we would open ourselves up, the people speaking to us, maybe later today or tomorrow, way that you're speaking that we've just been missing, but suddenly we see it. We're like, whoa, I didn't compute that because it didn't make sense. But God, it's you. And Lord, as we prepare to celebrate uh, the birth of your son, God, I just pray that this week would be filled with us seeing and hearing and sensing and knowing that you are there in ways that make absolutely no sense. Because you are that big, you are that powerful, you are that present, you are that loving. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.